You're listening to Sermon Audio from Waynesboro Grace. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples making disciples. For more information about our church, you can find us online at waynesborograce.org or on Facebook at Waynesboro Grace. service. Uh, so it's just been really neat to watch Damien and Jen get creative in their living rooms. Um, quite frankly, not sure how they get the kids to be that quiet, but that in and of itself deserves a high five when we're allowed to do that again. Maybe an elbow bump when you see them next time. But uh, really just anticipating hopefully the month of May being the month where we're going to do this online format And I would love if our governor would give us the green light and put us in the green phase to get back by the month of June. And so um, those are some of the things that we're anticipating, thinking, planning, uh, just trying to be wise, trying to also be obedient and submissive and not just to our city government, but also to the scriptures, which tell us to do those things and Um, So this is not maybe a close second, but I hope it's been encouraging to you. Um, We're going to spend some time in Galatians chapter 5 together this morning, and we're thinking and have been thinking over the last several weeks together about the agricultural metaphors, that the pictures in the scriptures that we are given of what it looks like to follow the Lord, what it looks like to be a disciple, and what it looks like to pursue this mission that we've been given. And at, at Grace, we believe our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And that, that's a mission that every local church has. And uh, we've got some unique ways that we think that get, gets worked out. And so there's a, a unique vision of ministry that we have. Um, but our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And as we think through what it means to be a disciple, uh, Jesus gives us some really helpful pictures, and the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament give us some helpful ways to think through what it looks like to follow the Lord. And we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5 today. Uh, In in a lot of ways, we're going to do our first pluck this morning. And by that, I mean the last several weeks, we've been talking about roots to plant, roots to sink deeply into the soils of your soul. Today, we think about some roots to pluck. And It's not just all pluck. We're going to see some plant there as well. But in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has some really honest things to say about what it means to follow the Lord and what the Galatians should do in following the Lord. And he's going to be real honest with them about just the struggle they're going to have and the desires of their flesh and what the fruit of the Spirit looks like as they walk by the Spirit and follow the lead of the spirit and we're going to try to understand some of those things together this morning and we want to be thinking specifically about how we target how we pluck how we understand how we fight the desires of our flesh what that means what that looks like and we're going to see five different aspects in these verses we'll look at this morning that the apostle paul gives us. And so before we go any further, let's pray together, and then we'll hop into the text, try to understand it together. 
God in heaven, we are grateful that you have given us your word. And as we looked at what the Apostle Peter wrote last week, that word is more sure than even the most tremendous experiences we may be a part of. And Peter himself recounting the transfiguration of seeing your glory unlike he had ever seen before. And how your word is more sure than even what his eyes saw. God, would you give us that perspective? God, would you grow in us that conviction and that faith that that we would want nothing more than to understand your word? That we would believe nothing is greater than then your word you tell us that the grass withers the flowers fail but the word of the lord stands forever and so god we draw near now to listen god we don't need my words this morning we need your word this morning we don't need my thoughts we need your thoughts we don't need my points of application we need your spirit to move in our hearts in such a way that you apply your word to us just as we need. So God, we ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that believe and minds that understand. God, as we think through what it looks like to still have conflict in our flesh, God, help us to celebrate the good news of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the the definitive victory that has already been won. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking together at verses 16 to 24, and I mentioned that there was five different aspects that we're going to turn our attention to over the next several minutes together. And those five different aspects are actually guided for us by a, a, a singular conjunction the Apostle Paul uses five different times. And your English translation may not pull this out exactly, um, but some of them do. And you're going to see the word, at least at the beginning of verse 16, but, or perhaps it says now, and that conjunction, uh, which is just a transitioning conjunction, sometimes it it, it extends the thought, sometimes it extends the thought by way of a a slight contrast, Um, sometimes it just just helps you see there's a little bit more there. Paul's going to use that conjunction five different times, and he's going to do so in verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse 22, and verse 24, and at least in the ESV translation, that conjunction leads every one of those sentences. And we're going to see five different aspects of what it is we do as we think through the desires of our flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And so in verses 16, the in 17, the, Apol, the Apostle Paul gives us our first one together and He says this, but I say to you, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Well, the first aspect that we'll look at here this morning together is the command to walk. The command to walk. And the Apostle Paul in verse 16 leads off with that. He says, I say to you, but I say to you, walk in the Spirit. Now that word walk is a word we looked at just two weeks ago in the book of Colossians in chapter 2, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says something very similar. Walk. We tried to define that word as actions that flow from faith. What does it mean to walk? Well, again, it's a picture. It's a metaphor of what this Christian life looks like, what it means to be a disciple-making disciple. It means to live. It means to behave. It means to have actions that flow from faith. And the reason it is a picture is because all of you and I more than likely walk. And we've already walked this morning, and we'll walk later today, and we'll walk to our kitchens, and we'll walk to the backyard, and we'll walk to the mailbox, and it gives us a way to understand what following the Lord looks like. It looks like walking. And there's a command there that you and I are to walk. We're to have actions that flow from faith. And the Apostle Paul used this word in in the book of Colossians. He uses this word in the book of Ephesians. He uses this word in the book of Philippians. He uses this word in the book of Romans. It's used often to describe what the Christian life looks like and here's the only command that we have in our set of verses this morning galatians chapter 5 verses 16 to 24 the only command given is that you and i walk that we have actions that flow from faith now it's just a general bible interpretation principle a life principle for me that i would suggest you give strong consideration to as well is this when the bible commands you to do something when the bible commands me to do something I'm going to be naturally inclined to do the very opposite. Now, it might be that the command is do not do something, and I, if I'm real honest with myself, probably am inclined to do what I shouldn't. The command might be to do something, as it is here in chapter 5, verse 16, and if I'm real honest with myself, I can be inclined to do the opposite. And acknowledging that, Paul acknowledges that there's a struggle, actually. That there's a struggle, there's this tug of war there's opposition between the desires of our flesh and the desires of the spirit and so there you have the command in verse 16 but i say to you walk have actions that flow from faith by the spirit or in the power of the spirit and here's what will happen as you do that as you walk by the spirit you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To gratify means to carry out. It means to fulfill. It means to perform. We might even just say it means to give in. Walk by the Spirit, and you're not going to give in to the desires of your flesh. That word desires means cravings. can even mean at times what is forbidden. There's an idea there. That's being expressed, and it is with that word flesh even, that there are things that our flesh is going to want. Desires that it is going to crave. That when we walk by the Spirit, we have the power to say no to. 
But when we walk in our flesh, we find ourselves gratifying those desires. We find ourselves giving in to those desires. And here the command is to walk. The command for you and I, firstly, is to walk. As we think about the flesh, I think one of the best ways to define the idea of the flesh and the word flesh that shows up a lot of different times throughout the New Testament is the yet-to-be-redeemed part of us. And if you wanted a, 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 a digging deeper opportunity this week, I'd encourage you to spend some time reading Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. In chapter 8 in particular, well, I should say all three of them, you're going to find the language of flesh. You're going to find the word flesh show up. And you're going to see in Romans 8 in particular that though our spirit is alive, our flesh Our bodies are still dead. And trying to understand what that means is actually pretty significant for us as we think through what it looks like to follow the Lord, what it looks like to be a believer, what it looks like to be a disciple-making disciple. Paul tells us in Romans 8, in the latter, and maybe in the middle sections of that chapter, that our bodies are yet to be redeemed. Creation's groaning, waiting for the redemption of the Son's of men. In verses 9, 10, 11, Paul says, look, your, your body is dead, but the Spirit's going to give life to your body. We understand that to be what takes place when Jesus returns and he transforms our lowly body to be like his glorious body. But what that means is that there still exists today in you and I the capacity for sinful desires. There still exists in you and I today the capacity for sickness because our bodies are not yet redeemed our bodies are not yet perfect it's part of why and how we're to understand even the whole covid 19 crisis that's around the reason that's even a thing is because our bodies are yet to be redeemed we're awaiting that and while we do creation itself is yet to be redeemed the new heavens and new earth are not yet here And it groans, and it groans under the weight of the fallenness and brokenness that invaded the very good creation that God made when Adam sinned. And so you and I are new creations. The immaterial part of us has been made new. And yet there still exists this yet-to-be-redeemed aspect. It's where sin still wants to hang out where the desires of the flesh still want to be gratified. And that could be physical impulses, that could be emotional impulses, that could be attitudes, that could be ways of thinking. It can be a whole host of things. But it speaks to the depravity that we had before Christ and how all-encompassing that depravity was. And part of the process then of you and I growing in our relationship with the Lord is for those desires of the flesh to not have victory. For our actions and our attitudes and our emotions and our thoughts to look more like Jesus. To be conformed more to His image. And so when Paul talks about the walking by the Spirit being the antidote
antidote to gratifying the desires of the flesh, what he is doing is being very honest to say, those desires are still going to be there. And the way you overcome them is to walk by the Spirit, to have actions that flow from faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes a little further to explain to us that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are actually at war with one another. And he does so in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed. That word oppose can mean opposite, it can mean contrasting, it can mean adversary. They're adversaries to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's interesting here at the end of 17 that Paul assumes that those who believe and have a faith in Jesus Christ want to follow him. And in fact, I don't believe the New Testament has a category for somebody who says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really want to follow him. That's not a category of disciple that exists. We'll actually see in this very text today that that's actually a way of seeing and a characteristic of those who don't actually have a relationship with the Lord. The New Testament assumes that those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus want to follow him. Now, in that assumption, there is a whole lot of grace and acknowledgement that we do so imperfectly. And the expectation is not perfection. It is rather direction. We want to follow the Lord. We want to live for the Lord. We want to be disciple-making disciples. We want to not gratify the desires of our flesh. And here Paul tells us the way to do that is to walk by the Spirit. And so in, in, in many ways, you and I should not be surprised when our flesh desires something that is contrary to what God's Word says and what His Spirit would have for us. And as we thought about last week, when we find ourselves coming up against a, a set of directions that we particularly don't want to follow, we don't argue with the GPS. We follow. Because the desires of our flesh are going to be opposed. They're going to be an adversary <clears throat> to the desires of the Spirit. And if that conflict exists for you, this might sound strange, but I'd actually encourage you to find great joy in that. And you might hear that statement and go, I'm supposed to find joy in the fact that I'm conflicted over the, the, the shortcomings that I still see in my life? Yeah. And here's why. It's evidence the Spirit's there. When you're not conflicted, as we'll see in verse 19, it's actually evidence that you might not be a believer. You might not have the Spirit. You might not even be able to walk by the Spirit because you're not being led by the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't indwell in you. Those that have the Spirit, those who seek to follow and walk by the Spirit, those are those that oftentimes acknowledge the conflict. And in my experience, spending some time with older believers. The older you get, the more mature you are in your faith. 
usually the more conflict you see. The more frustration you have that there's still some fleshly desires that want to pop up. So even the process of becoming more like Jesus includes a greater frustration to this opposition that still exists. The first thing that we're to do is follow the command to walk. Paul says in verse 18 then, this is our second movement, that there is freedom to walk. And there in Galatians 5 verse 18 he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the word freedom doesn't show up in that particular verse, but here's why I interpret that verse as an expression of you and I having the freedom to walk. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul's been talking a lot about the law. And we don't have the benefit in this sermon of of building up his argument to chapter 5 the way we normally would. We're kind of flying a helicopter and landing down here in this set of verses. And then we're going to fly away at the end of today. But he's been building up this argument and discussing the law. And in its in, in kind of in its fullest sense, through the book of Galatians, Paul says this regarding the law. He says that you and I are free from earning justification through obedience. We're free from earning salvation through our good deeds. We've been freed in Christ by the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ from that bondage. We've been freed from the curse of the law, and the curse of the law was death. We've been freed from death. We've been freed from bondage or imprisonment under sin. We've been freed to love and to serve. And so I, I understand verse 18 to mean that when you and I are led by the Spirit, What Paul is having us understand is that there is tremendous freedom. Now that word led, that verb led there means to be uh, influenced in a certain direction. And Paul writes it in such a way that he is indicating that the action is being done by the Holy Spirit to you and I. We're passive in this. So think about it this way. This is not follow the leader on a bike ride when, Dad, you're in the front of the line. Because you know as well as I do that your kids can take a hard left turn at any given point in time, and they're no longer following the leader. That's not the picture Paul gives us here. Rather, the picture he gives us here is of a train whose boxcars are hooked up to the locomotive. And the locomotive is the Holy Spirit. And we are being led like those boxcars are being led by the power of the locomotive, the Holy Spirit. And we're passive to some degree because of his activity on to us. So how does that actually work itself out in real life? Here's how I think that works itself out in real life. It works itself out in surrender and in following almost circling back right to the command to walk. 
walk by the Spirit, by surrendering to the Spirit, and following the lead of the Spirit, who does just that. Now, just for a moment here, I want to I I just think about the work of the Spirit, because at, at times there can be some confusion regarding what the Spirit does and how experiential the experiences of the Spirit are. And do I have to go on a mountaintop? And do I have to maybe, maybe crawl on my knees? Do I have to go to a worship service? Do I have to find ways to, to kind of feel warm and tingly to know that I've got the Spirit? And, and while maybe those things in and of themselves are not bad, if that's what you're looking to find confirmation of the work of the Spirit, I think you might be heading in some problematic directions. So I just want to very briefly think about the fact that you and I, to surrender and follow the Spirit, it's actually quite similar to the idea that is written elsewhere in the New Testament about being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. And the only way that we're able to pursue that is because of the work the Spirit's already done. When we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, we thought through what it looked like to be filled with the Spirit in this demonstration with the balloon. And, and let me just put some air in it for a moment. I could ask you the question, is this balloon full of air? And it is. But I can put more air in it. Is this balloon full of air? It is, and I could keep blowing the air up. Similarly, we can continue to pursue more and more filling of the Spirit. Our balloons can keep getting more and more, and that's done through surrender and through following. It's done through taking what we know and can read and the commands given to us and and obeying them and, and, and following the lead of the Spirit and having actions that flow from faith. But all of that, all of that, is actually built on the foundation of the Spirit's work. And so because the Spirit has regenerated us, made us born again, made us new creations in Christ Jesus, we can surrender and follow and pursue being filled. Because the Spirit has baptized us into the body of Christ, we can surrender and follow and pursue being filled. Because the Spirit indwells us as the temple of the living God, we can surrender and follow and pursue being filled. Because the Spirit has sealed us and guarantees that God's good work will be completed, we can surrender and follow and pursue being filled. Because the Spirit has adopted us as sons and daughters, we can surrender and follow and pursue being filled because the Spirit gives us power to understand spiritual truth, biblical truth. We can surrender and follow and pursue being filled because the Spirit gives us power to obey. We can surrender and follow and pursue being filled because the Spirit even gifts us to obey the commands that He's given us. We can surrender and follow and pursue being filled. And so this command for you and I to walk by the Spirit comes amidst the freedom 
that we're not earning salvation, that we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We're not under law. We've been freed from death, been freed from the curse of the law. We've been freed from the bondage and imprisonment of sin. And we have been freed and called to love and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit who leads us to do just in verse 18, Paul says, there is a freedom to walk. Now, the next two movements that we're going to see in verses 19, 20, 21, and then 22 and 23 contrast for us again works of the flesh and what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul does is he actually kind of thinks forward to the outcomes of what unchecked flesh gratification leads to. And in doing so, I think acknowledges, as he has elsewhere, that that this is something, the desires of the flesh are something that you and I are going to have to say no to by the power of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, we have the ability to do so. We don't have to gratify them. But here he says in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Fifteen different things, I believe. And Paul uses the word works to describe these. These are deeds that originate in the flesh. And I think he's making a contrast here between the desires of the flesh, which you and I are called by the uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to not gratify and are told we can do so with the unchecked, all-in, give-me-as-much-as-I-can-get works of the flesh. We won't take the time here this morning to define each one of those. Quite frankly, if you understand just the basic English definition of each one of those, you are well on your way to understanding exactly what Paul means. There's not any hidden ideas in the Greek, and you're not somehow let off the hook if you know something about the original language that he wrote. He makes it pretty clear, and he gives a warning. And the warning shows up at the tail end of verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word do, it's a verb. It's a descriptive verb telling us the actions of those whom he's talking to. It means to practice, to accomplish something through activity. I found it helpful what John MacArthur said, that the sense of this word, this verb, describes continual habitual action. And although believers undoubtedly can commit these sins, those people whose basic character is summed up in the uninterrupted and unrepentant practice of them cannot belong to God. Kevin DeYoung said it this way, it is the consistent and frequent teaching of the Bible that those whose lives are marked by habitual ungodliness will not go to heaven. And there's a contrast given there. 
between those who want to fight the desires of their flesh and those who are all in. And this is just one of many sections in the scriptures that tell us if you're all in on pursuing sin, you've not been born again. To be born again, to be led by the Spirit, to be indwelt by the Spirit and sealed by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. All of those things we just talked about. Is to have a desire to say no to sin and yes to obedience. Now, in hearing that, I don't want you to think that there's a certain level of desire that you need to get to to somehow get salvation sealed or confirmed or locked in. What Paul intends for us to see is a very honest picture of what it means to follow Jesus. There's still going to be temptation to sin. That temptation comes from the desires of our flesh, the yet-to-be-redeemed part of us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we say no, and we can say no. And the believer is marked by a growing, sometimes slowly growing, sometimes quickly growing, but a growing dependence on the Spirit and growing consistency and maturity to say no to sin, yes to obedience. Verses 19, 20, and 21 give us a picture of those who were just saying yes to sin. Well, the fourth aspect that we'll see here is then the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit showing up in verses 22 and 23. And there Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That word fruit there means the product or outcome. Maybe just a fancy way of saying fruit. I love fruit trees. I got a couple of them in my yard. It's not a big yard. And unfortunately, we bought a full-size peach tree not intending to. We're going to have a lot of peaches in a couple years. But I love the fruit that comes from that tree. And that tree bears fruit because its roots are placed in healthy soil and it's been cared for. And all of that imagery we've been thinking through the last several weeks. We root ourselves in God's word. We're like that tree in Psalm 1. The fruit that comes out of that, the fruit that comes through God's spirit and the outworking of his spirit as we follow his lead, as we surrender and follow and seek to be filled, and as we walk in obedience by his power. This is what comes out of that. And Paul says, there's no such law against these things. You are able and you are as free as you want to run as hard as you want after these things. There is no such law against them. In verse 1 of chapter 5, if you just want to scan over there, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's saying, look, don't try to find salvation in the law. Understand the freedom that you have in Christ. And now at the tail end of 
verse or chapter five, he's telling us run hard after the things that the spirit does. Walk in obedience to those things. In verse 13, he says you were called for freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom that we have in Christ is not freedom for you and I to go unchecked in our actions, but rather it's the freedom that gives us permission to run hard after the things that will glorify the Lord, the things that will build and develop in us the characteristics of a disciple and allow us to make other disciples. And there's no law against those such things. See, oftentimes I think we need to change our perspective and what we think about when we consider what it means to obey. Because oftentimes we have this conception in our mind that obedience is keeping me from something that I'm actually going to love and enjoy and be satisfied by. Now, when it's your kid and it's bedtime and they want another scoop of ice cream, you might actually be keeping them from something they would love and enjoy and find satisfying. But when we're thinking about what God has to say, commands that he gives us he's not trying to keep us from good things he's trying to lead us to the greatest things and in telling you and i to avoid the list of things in verse 19 20 and 21 to not gratify the desires of the flesh he is saying look there is not life there there's not life there You may find fleeting pleasure, but it will be fleeting. There will not be satisfaction there. Rather, here's where you find satisfaction. You allow my spirit to lead you. You walk by the power of my spirit. You see his fruit blossom and develop in your life. There's no law against those things. There's no law against how you love your neighbor no law against how you practice and show gentleness. Just even thinking through that list of what we typically call virtues. One of the ways that I just try to discern in my own heart is in in regards to am 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 I thinking in fleshly ways or am I thinking in ways of the spirit is in this regard. Who wins? If I win, if, if, if Tim wins in that conversation or that argument or that pursuit, probably the flesh. But if my, if, my, if my attitude and my emotions and my thoughts and my disposition are all oriented towards loving and serving you so that you actually emerge the one who wins... good shot that's of the spirit and i want to pursue those things and i don't nearly pursue them as much as i should there's been the command to walk there's the freedom to walk we see the works of the flesh and the outcome that arises from that the fruit of the spirit in contrast and lastly the definitive victory. Paul says in Galatians 5, 24, and those 
who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice there that he's talking again to believers, those who have the Spirit, those who see the fruit of the Spirit working out in and blossoming in their lives. And he says, look, you belong to Christ. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's a definitive victory. Now, you might be thinking about that and looking at that verse and looking back at verse 16, and you might be going, how can my flesh have been put to death and yet still have desires? How in the world does that make sense? Here's what I think Paul is saying. That word crucified does mean put to death. Here's what he's saying. And it's tremendously good news. Those desires that our flesh has do not have the last word. They are not definitive. They might be strong. The pull they may sway us to may feel unending. They do not have the last word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except which is common. And God gives you a way out. And Hebrews 4, we're told that we have a great high priest who's sympathetic to our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we were. And yet he was without sin. And there, there is then the command in Hebrews 4 for you and I to draw near to the throne of grace, to find the grace and mercy that we need in our time of need. That those passions of the flesh and desires of the flesh do not have to have the definitive word. You do not have to say yes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can say no to sin and yes to obedience. Because the definitive, decisive death blow to our flesh came on the cross. We have been given the Holy Spirit as we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And he works in us to reveal areas that we need to spend time in confession and repentance for. And he empowers us to obey. And we're called to have actions that flow from faith. Do you believe that the Spirit is capable of giving you the power you need to say yes to obedience? Have actions that flow from that faith. Do you believe the Spirit is able and capable of giving you the power you need to be patient tomorrow or gentle today or have self-control later tonight? Have faith that leads to action have actions that flow from faith. The definitive victory has already been won. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to gratify the desires of our flesh. God has given us who Jesus called the helper. 
help us understand what it looks like to follow him well. And his job is to glorify the son and to lead us in following the son well. So as we close, we're going to sing the song, Turn Your Eyes, that we sang last week. This is a tremendous song. It's one of my favorite hymns, but quite frankly, I say that just about every hymn that I quote. This one's my favorite. But it's a good one. Because at least for me, it resets my focus, reorients my perspective back to where it should be that on the Savior who died on the cross and rose from the grave and has promised to return. And until he does, he's given me his spirit to guarantee that that good work that he began will indeed be completed. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for not leaving us alone. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the helper. And he's good for his word. God, help us to follow well. We want to we follow you well. We want to be disciple-making disciples. We want to have actions that flow from faith and have lives that are living declarations of your goodness and your gospel and your glory. We ask that you'd help us to do that. And we turn our eyes on you. That the things of earth may indeed grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us, and be sure to check us out on the World Wide Web.